Barry actually asked for this, and then a couple of other people did as well. So that's where we're going. Um, we're going to have a look at live thinking, uh, design thinking, live thinking. <laughs> it's a long day. So design thinking. This is part one. Um, when we started the, the call this morning, um, a couple of people wanted more. Uh, and I'll explain as we go on what more. So we'll do next month. We'll do the more next month. So let's have a look at this. Um, what is it? Well, actually, it's kind of a, well, it's this. You can read it yourself. And I think, like, when you start to have a look through the, the research literature, what you find is it's, as you can well imagine, it's kind of described in various ways. It started out at Stanford. There was a Stanford project many, many years ago. Um, that really kind of t coined the term design thinking. And it was this, what they were doing was bringing together a kind of collection of, I suppose, design-based ideas in order to solve problems initially in the kind of, you know, more complex problems in the more uh, public sphere. Um, but it's really about the practical application of design principles and processes to solve problems effectively. And it's also, and you'll see this term coming up about human-centered design and that it's all about putting the human right at the center of solving problems and designing things, designing solutions to things so that it goes from the user out rather than the technology to the user. Um, and there's a series of principles, which we'll go through now, uh, the main principles. Uh, the first principle, and the, the, the principle that kind of crops up a lot in, in virtually every paper is this idea about the empathy for the users. And it really is about kind of gaining a deep understanding of the user's experiences, what their needs are, what their perspectives on life are, what kind of challenges they face. Um, and a lot of that's done through kind of techniques such as interviews, observations, um, user personas, and they're really trying to get inside the problems and the issues that the users are facing or the potential users are facing about a, a particular issue. Um, and that's kind of right at the heart of all of this. So it's not a more technocratic form of problem solving. It's a very human form, and it really is about trying to get inside and understand how the client, the customer, or the users are going to be interacting with whatever it is that they're designing. The whole process, the entire design process, um, has a high level of user involvement through it, so it's not taken away from them at any stage. It kind of actively involves users in the whole process through kind of co-design sessions, workshops, usability testing, and they're, they're trying to really make sure that the solutions that are developed really meet the needs of, of the users. So it's like a really close alignment and fit for whoever's going to be at the end of the problem-solving process. 
that there's an iterative design process and that it's cyclical, uh, that involves prototyping, so putting together really fast, cheap prototypes, testing them, re, um, seeing whether they work, how they work, what the problems are, refining it, and then go back. So there's a, there's a whole process around prototyping, testing, and refining to ensure that the final product or service or whatever it happens to be is as user-friendly and as intuitive as possible. And we'll come back to this whole issue about intuitive. So uh, the typical example you see in, in kind of lectures and things around this is the iPhone, uh, particularly the original iPhone and the original iPad. The idea was that users could pick them up. They didn't need a manual to understand how to operate it. It was all just intuitive. And there were a lot of design principles that were involved in a lot of the early earlier Apple products that it's about solving real life problems that are faced by the users rather than, you know, we've got a technology, how can we fit it into what they want? So it really is from the user out kind of perspective. One of the other principles is using multidisciplinary teams so that the solutions and the way of solving the problems doesn't just come from one, one perspective. So it's around bringing together kind of diverse perspectives from different fields, and they can include things like psychology, design, anthropology, engineering, physics, um, and, and things like that. And in fact, I've got experience of the power of multidisciplinary uh, working um, on a, a research project where we involved um, scientists from a, a number of different uh backgrounds and the one of the physicists actually completely changed the way that we were thinking about problem solving so i was uh, doing a lot of research around problem solving under conditions of uncertainty and um, his perspective which i'll explain shortly uh, really transformed the way that we thought about it so this becomes quite important in design thinking that it's not like a a niche team of designers that they're actually getting perspectives from a wide range of people on the design, on the way that they're solving the problem. And then the last main um, principle, and there are a series of others as you go through the, the research, but the, the ones that um, most of the research agree on, uh, this is the last of those, which is accessibility and inclusivity. Um, ensuring that designs are accessible and inclusive and that they're catering for the needs of people with a wide range of abilities, backgrounds and experiences so that almost anybody can come in and use whatever it is. So they're very interested in the, not in the, you know, just one or two people testing it. What are the, what are the range of end users going to be? And under what conditions are they likely to be using this? So really field testing it um, and, and seeing whether it's, it's, it's kind of, well, we used to call it in, in, the, in, in the police, police proof, you know, so that police officers can use it without damaging it. And in essence, human-centered design is really about putting human needs at the heart of the innovation process. It's kind of leading to 
products and services that are not just technologically sound, um, but are deeply resonant with the people who are using them. They have this, it feels intuitive and really easy to use, which is one of the major outcomes of, of design thinking. There are a series of stages of um, design thinking, uh, and we'll have a look at what those are. There are seven stages. So now when you go through the research, what you'll find is that there are different, I suppose, flavors of design thinking. And this, this seven-step design process tends to be the most referenced, I suppose, um, and, and it's a development from the original Stanford um, uh, design thinking uh, process. The first part of this is about defining a problem and firstly working out what the problem is. Now, let me just going to stop that there um, and we'll go and play with a whiteboard that's the kind of thing that I like to do where have the whiteboards gone that's a bit bizarre zoom have been messing around with stuff oh, here we go right so this is some work that um some research or the results of some research that um, I did years ago around the whole, how, how do people solve problems in conditions of uncertainty? Now, what fell out of that was quite an interesting understanding of what was going on in terms of problems, particularly in organizations and what was going on in organizations. So if we look at this as a timeline, down here's the future, down this end of the past, when we started to have a look at what was going on with the way that largely, not always, but largely in organisations, the way people define problems and perceive of problems, so that perception that there is something that needs dealing with, what we found was, let me just uh, put this here, that there would be a point at which, let's do a nice arrow, there would be a point at which that a problem was perceived and realized and articulated. It was known as P1, or we'll just call it a problem. And they would art oops, and they would articulate the problem in whatever way they would articulate the problem. But when we started to have a look at it and started to have a look at what they were articulating as problems, and there was a whole range of them, bear in mind we were largely looking at the kind of messy kind of problems when organizations were in quite a lot of flux and chaos. What we actually discovered was that it wasn't so much the problem they were articulating, it was the It was the symptoms of the problem. Now, what's the distinction? So, for example, a simple example is, you know, you're driving your car and it starts making a horrible noise. Uh, you stop, you take it to a mechanic, and you say, my car's making a horrible noise, can you have a look at it? Now, to you, the problem is the car's making a horrible noise. To the mechanic, they know that it's just a symptom of the actual problem. 
And they've now got to go and diagnose what the actual problem is. And it's a bit like going to the doctors with a stomachache. It's the stomachache that's our problem, but the doctor goes, that's a symptom. I need to find out what the problem is, right? So, and one of the things that we kind of discovered is that in terms of kind of time and things, the problem, there is a gap between, and there's a gap in terms of time, there's always a gap in terms of time between the symptoms being noticed and the problem actually occurring. So by the time we've noticed the symptoms, the problem occurred some time ago. We never notice the symptoms at the same time that the problem occurs. There's always a gap. And in that gap, things are changing quite often. The problem isn't stationary. And the problem is that, and when we started to have, again, we're talking about the messy kind of problems, the uncertain, you know, when organizations are in flux and uncertainty, is that usually the problem's kind of getting worse. It's exacerbating. But the problem's getting worse from there. What they notice is the symptoms at this time and try and whoops my problem and symptoms shifted <laughs> right <laughs> try that again right they start solving the symptoms and they start noticing the symptoms getting worse and they're still keyed into the symptoms rather than the problem and when we started to get them to articulate what it was that they were doing largely under these what problem solving actually meant to them what we discovered was that what it meant was getting back to how it was before the problem occurred. But to them, it was the symptom. Well, it, the problem was a symptom, so if you see what I mean. So what they wanted to do was kind of reverse time almost and get to a place that they thought was here. In actual fact, in order to get back to before the problem, it had to be here. So they were kind of looking at the wrong time and they were looking at the wrong things, and it, that was typical in situations of uncertainty. Now, the other thing that we started to do, and this was at the same time, because what we were doing was looking at what was going on in large organizations. And then what we were looking at at the same time is what entrepreneurs were doing. How are they viewing problems and how are they solving problems? And actually what we discovered was quite interesting was that the entrepreneurs would look at these symptoms and they didn't particularly care what the problem was. What they said is, right, okay, this is what's going on. They wanted to know what the reality of the situation was. What's happening for people? How are they perceiving what's going on for them? And then their job, as far as they were concerned, was how can I do something that will ameliorate where they are at that moment in time? So in effect, what they're doing and and it was it's I don't think that they're I, I I don't know whether I don't think that they were actually cognizant of it. They were actually capturing all of this in terms of this is their reality at the moment in time. What is it that I can provide that will move them out to a better place? That's a whole different way of thinking to how do we get back to how it was before? A whole different way of thinking. Now, this is where this multidisciplinary thing came in. We, uh, I'd been working on this 
um, as a piece of research for a while. Um, I'll do another session around this and a whole load of stuff around uncertainty. But what, when I showed this to a physicist, the physicist kind of sat down and went, oh, that's interesting. Actually, what this is all about is energy. And I went, what? Energy? He said, yeah, it's about energy. He said, when you think about it, everything below this line, all of this stuff that's occurring within organizations largely has a sense of negative energy. They're just trying to get back to how they were. That's a whole different ball game than what these people are doing, which is a positive level of energy, the enthusiasm, the way that they're dealing with things, the way that they're thinking about things, the way they're orienting themselves towards the future and the issue is wholly different. And he was right. It was absolutely right. And and uh, like I'd never even thought of it in terms of energy or anything. And the moment we started thinking in terms of what was going on in organizations and we started thinking about what was happening for entrepreneurs in terms of energy, we started to see a whole ser a suite of other things that were going on, particularly in organizations. And the way that organizations were constraining the way that people were perceiving of problems and dealing with problems, largely because of all of the, the things that surround people in organizations. So, and we, we've... I've talked about this on some of the other issues around the structure of the organization, the systems that they involve, the, the procedures, policies, and processes that go in. And that all of those things are actually decision-making heuristics. They're taking decisions away from people. So they're making people more and more dependent on all of those processes in the organization. And they don't feel that free to come up with really creative ideas because one of the things they really don't want to do below the line here where most of the organizations are is fail and they certainly if they're a manager they don't want to fail in front of other people these people here aren't frightened of failure and in fact their mantra is fail fast just keep testing things throw things out see what happens and we'll see this now in the whole design thinking um process so we see this separation and as I, because when I started this, thanks to Barry, I knew like that about design thinking. I'd heard of it and I've kind of seen bits of it. And it wasn't until I really started getting into it, I thought, oh my golly, you know, this sits with a whole load of the work that we were doing years ago. Anyhow, right, let me just close that and we shall go back to our slides. So this came out of this whole thing about, you know, how do we define the problem? And what is it we're actually defining becomes quite critical in this process. Then the second stage is around doing some research. Now, it's kind of different research because it's about learning about the problem through collecting background information and observing users, talking to users, playing with what they're playing with, trying to get inside the issue, the problem, and how the users are perceiving these things. That's the thing that really starts to, this is what the research is about. It's more about what's going on, and it's exactly what those entrepreneurs were doing. What's the reality here? And they're trying to get multiple perspectives on it. They'll ask all sorts of people about what they're seeing, and they'll interview all sorts of people, even people that you think aren't connected. And a nice example of this is um, the big short. 
you've seen the big short on the lead up to the financial crisis and there was a group of investors they were they were interviewing hairdressers they were interviewing um car salesmen all sorts of people about what they were doing where they were where the, how how they had the money for these things and they started to suddenly see this landscape because of this research that we're doing about the people what the people were seeing then comes a process of ideation and what this is around just brainstorming all sorts of ideas and without evaluation so every idea is as good as the other you're just collecting as many ideas about potential solutions as you can and I'll, I'll give you an example of this that comes from the the, the police you, you know quite a lot of countries do tagging of criminals so if you get convicted you get tagged so that you you've got to stay at home on a curfew and if you go outside of the home the 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 alarm bleeps in the police station you get arrested basically or you're not meant to be in a certain area so that idea for tagging actually came out of a workshop that i wasn't running i happened to be on way before i was in academia when i was in the police in belgium and we were looking at the problem of recidivism of, of people on bail or people getting out of jail early and then recommitting crimes and they had a group of um creative problem solvers come and facilitate the thing and the whole tagging thing came from one police officer's idea and he said it would be ideal if we could just die all of the criminals or anybody who's convicted with a permit die so we could see them you know just die them all bright pink and then we could see who they are that'd be you know and everybody laughed but when you start thinking about it that's what a tagging does so it then became a technological question how can we die how can we tag all of the, the people that we want to tag so we know where they are and we can see them and if they're in an area that they shouldn't be in or in an area that has high burglaries and they're a burglar we can go ah hang on we can see them and eventually, it didn't take very long, within the year, the idea of tagging came around, electronic tagging, and it came from that that idea. And this is why it's there's no evaluation. It's It really is about lot, the more ideas, the better. Then comes prototyping. And the whole thing about prototyping is about building really quick iterations um, of potential sol solutions and it's kind of string and sellotape stuff, really low-cost materials, no particular workmanship, that, and it's a value of speed over quality at this stage. We're just trying things out. That, and what we're doing is we're just, you know, there's a saying about, um, you know, firing bullets rather than cannons. Lots of little experiments, cheap ones, that if it fails, that's fine. We just move on. It's not costly. And what one of the things, so a couple of the papers that I saw about who are good at prototyping, and there are certain types of engineers who are really good at prototyping because they're quite happy having fast, dirty prototypes that don't look very good. And then there's a whole group of engineers who are perfectionists who are awful at prototyping because they want to make it perfect. 
and were not interested in those kinds of so they were one of the papers was talking about the kinds of creative ones who would just stick it on a bit of wood and throw it out and see whether it works whether it does the job and that they need to be recruiting the right kinds of engineers the perfectionist engineers are better at later on once we've we've decided on a solution they will make the best solution but right now during prototypes don't care then we need to select a prototype um, a, a solution or a, a small um, set of solutions to pursue for the remainder of the process and this is where we start building quality and implementing the solutions and so the actual we start fabricating it and trying to make it as user-friendly as possible and then actually placing it in the actual context that it's going to be used so for example if it is for the police it's got to be you know it's got to be police officer proof because they get kicked about a bit um if it's in an office it's got to work within those conditions if it's out in the field somewhere for archaeologists it's got to work you know with rain pouring down and stuff like that so it's a contextual thing as well as the user thing and are the users able to use this easily within that context and then finally there's this thing about the the designers learning and obtaining feedback on the solution and reflecting on what happened within the design process and and these processes here from so this is iterative and this is iterative and as we're learning we may find that later on additions of whatever the solution are come out of here so we if you know if you go into an automotive design plant you'll find some engineers are working on the next prototype and quite a lot of engineers are just working on next year's model they're redesigning the wing mirrors you know new wiper blades or whatever the small incremental things that make next year's model sellable whereas there are other people who are making the big leap that are further off you know hidden somewhere else in the in the other side of the factory and again and we'll talk about this in a second each of these require different sets of competencies and that's why it's important to have these multidisciplinary teams so let's have a look at what these competencies are this study uh, there's a series of studies actually that I've kind of brought together but it's it's largely based on this 2016 paper here they started to have a look at the design thinking competencies and, and they then started to look at how difficult it is to develop each of the competencies so what i'm going to present you here is a list of competencies based on difficulty at the top did somebody say something no maybe it was me right so the hardest competency to get right is prototyping particularly creating the early solution models getting engineers not to be perfectionists finding engineers that are happy to throw out like quick and dirty things that are going to break and not over designing things the next one was around getting people to really generate ideas without evaluating them 
and coming out with as many stupid ideas as possible, being really creative. Because it's those ones out on the edge that quite often are the defining ideas that when you look at them, you go, well, that's like painting or, or criminals bright pink. You know, who'd have ever thought that would have led to the solution of tagging? But that's the point, is when you start later, you start evaluating them and you start asking the question, if we could, how would we do this in practice? you start to find the weird ideas start to coalesce into something usable and that are genuinely groundbreaking. Then the next set of um, issues around defining problems, and I find it interesting that they've got these this one as third. Certainly, and, like, and I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing with them, um, certainly from the research that I did years ago, one of the biggest problems that I found in organizations is they really weren't very good at defining problem statements and working out what the problem was, but that's fine. I get it within this context because we weren't looking at these things. Then comes testing. Um, usually a lot of R&D people are really good at this. Um, so there's a whole set of skills around this and this is where R&D comes into its own really. And then exploring, questioning, collecting information from the users, find, trying to get into the skin of the users. Um, and that's connected to this next one, which is empathizing, really understanding the world from the user's point of view. And then evaluating them, just checking if the design is actually meet, meeting the user's needs seen as a lower lower level of uh, competencies and skills. And then finally, those next year's models, just refining the, the solutions based on the user's feedback as they start to use it over the years. Somebody keeps watching it and we just keep updating it, going, okay, we could make that button better and those kinds of things. So from, and it's not just this study, but this study really started it off looking at design thinking competencies in terms of difficulty and the kinds of effort that you've got to make in order to make uh, design thinking work within a team. And that quite often, a lot of these things aren't the same people. This is why multidisciplinary teams become quite important in all of this. Okay, so that's kind of an overview of of design thinking. I'm just very quickly, then what I did was I did a quick kind of splurge across the research. Now, there's quite a lot of research published around design thinking. Um, when I went off and had a look at it, there was over 5 million papers, which is way more than I can digest, that's for certain. So I, I kind of looked at the last four or five years and started to look for themes within that. What What is the research largely saying around design thinking? And that's what we've got here. So, and I've I've got some um, references and things, but there are more. I'll do a reference pack as well. So, the first theme that was coming out of the last kind of four or five years worth of research is that organisations that adopt design thinking um, processes tend to enhance both the innovation capabilities within the organisation and their overall performance. There's quite a lot of um, uh, research showing a close connection between um, 
introducing and developing design thinking in an organization. And because they are multifunction and multidisciplinary teams, it starts, the whole innovation thing starts to take hold largely across an organization or within a site. And the, the design thinking's emphasis on user emphasis, uh, on user empathy, iterative prototyping and cross-functional collaboration those three things are kind of the holy trinity for organizations in terms of promoting organizational performance and better innovation performance. I'll just go over those again there. User empathy, understanding the user, iterative prototyping and cross-functional collaboration. Those three have been found to have uh, a significant impact on improving problem solving across an organization and improving innovation outcomes as well as organizational outcomes. Then this, the whole idea of cross-disciplinary collaboration, cross-functional collaboration. And there's a lot of studies in showing that design thinking tends to act as a bridge between disciplines and functions. And it starts to bring them together. So when we have organizations with heavy silos introducing design thinking starts to break those down and there were quite a few papers showing that relationships that are forged during design thinking projects last longer than the project itself people keep those relationships going largely uh, from a work so that the the silos start to break down which is interesting in terms of organizational outcomes it's something that i hadn't kind of thought about at all and it it fosters kind of collaboration among individuals beyond the design thinking projects um, and it also fosters a greater kind of cross-pollination of ideas that generally leads to more creative solutions and also um, just tends to in, enhance the learning that's going on within the organization and increase the adaptability of teams. Teams become a lot more flexible once they've been part of a design thinking project. So it has these kind of knock-on ramifications for an organization. It also um, enhances problem-solving skills, which is what it's about, obviously. And the individuals who are trained in design thinking and have worked in a multidisciplinary team tend to develop kind of their own enhanced problem solving skills they tend to involve more people in it they tend to think better about it they're much more likely to engage in prototyping thinking about what the problem is rather than jumping to the conclusion about what the problem is um, increasing their critical thinking their creative thinking as well as their ability to empathize with whatever the solution is for or whoever the solution is for and they tend to start thinking much more systematically. So there's a whole range of benefits that come out of um, design thinking going on in organizations. And a, a number of the studies were kind of indicating that this is more likely to be the case where organizations or teams are trying to solve more complex, ambiguous um, uh, problems rather than simpler problems. So the kind of more wicked problems that normal kind of analytics and things don't really kind of touch the side, if, as it were. Um, obviously, you know, 
the, the fact that it's human-centered. There's a, a huge um, improvement in user satisfaction engagement, and that's both for customers and clients, but also people within organizations. So design thinking is increasingly used for um, things like organizational development, organizational change. It's being used a lot in those, but there's, there's like this huge increase in research in those areas. It's a massive area in education, which we'll come to um, in a second, um, which I actually didn't know about, embarrassingly. Um, and it's used a lot in instructional design. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. One of the interesting things that was coming out of the research, though, about um, user satisfaction engagement, whether they're internal or external, is that it not only increases user satisfaction, but it also increases user loyalty and engagement. So customers become much more loyal and engaged, largely because they're part of the design process. So it not only aligns with them closer, they actually feel listened to. And that becomes quite quite a significant part of this. In terms of educational outcomes, the, this is probably one of the biggest areas of increase in the use of design thinking around co-creating courses with, with potential students. And I kind of looked at this and went, oh. <laughs> so, like, if I have an admission to make... Um, the university what tends to happen is they say okay you've got a phd in this this is your area of expertise design a course around that and attract some students what this is doing is turning it on its head basically and saying go out and find out what they want first before you start like designing your course involve them in the design of the course um about what's going to work what and that includes the content and the process and that What's being found is a number of studies found that it really heightens the educational outcomes for the individuals who are involved in that in that process, and it also in, in a number of papers are showing that it kind of promotes things like inquiry based learning approach, critical thinking, and greater collaboration uh, between students as well. Uh, and it's been used, uh, as I say, it's. it's it's become quite enormous in, in certain sectors within education. It's increasingly moving into higher education, um, but it's been used a lot for instructional design within organisations, um, but also in kind of K-12 secondary education as well. Uh, it's way bigger than I realised. That was for certain. I was a little embarrassed by that. I thought I knew what was going on in the educational sector until I started reading this stuff. And then finally, the the last main cluster of research that I was finding in the last kind of five years is this, is that it has quite a significant impact on organizational culture that um, adopting design thinking can significantly lead to cultural shifts within organizations, kind of promoting openness to experimentation, a greater tolerance of failure, and a, a more proactive um stance towards things like um, learning and innovation. We see greater levels of proactivity and problem solving across organizations as well. There's quite a few studies tracking that. Um, and one of the things that has come out of quite a few of these studies is that um, design thinking 
makes organizations much more um, agile and adaptive, much more flexible, and that the culture becomes much more flexible as well. They're, they're able to cope, cope with change. They start to move into almost immediately a problem-solving mindset rather than the defensive mindset of we don't want this change. So it, it's, you know, as I say, Barry asked for this and I had like about that much idea about design thinking. I'd kind of heard of it. I knew a little bit, but it's really kind of blown my mind a bit on exactly how much research there is out there, how much good evidence there is for some of this stuff. So I'll stop waddling on. Um, I wish I could make the Bugs Bunny noise, but I can't. So Anyway, thoughts, questions, comments. I hope that's been useful anyway. Is that what you, you were looking for, Barry? Yeah, well, th David, I was just uh, so thank you because I, I think um, it's even broader, wider, deeper than than I I realised myself. I, I, I it's it's a stunning realisation that there are five million papers out there, uh, and the conclusions that you've drawn um, from from what's available. So I, I think I mean certainly from a um, organizational change transformation perspective it's profound again you know it's another one of those profound moments but then that happens every month so so every time every time we have have a, a live call there's another sort of a profound moment of realization so yeah i think this has got real real there's there's significant alignment with um the the, the cotter principles leadership challenge all of that stuff it seems to be pulling together uh, along with this whole design thinking process yes yeah exactly and what i'll do on part two is i'm going to have a look at so people have asked for stuff around problem definition so we'll go into that a bit more but i'll also the, the other thing that uh, people on the last two calls have asked for is stuff around organizational development um there's quite a lot um wolfgang actually you'll be interested in this there's quite a lot in design thinking in um digital transformation for organizations which is obviously connected to um, organizational development as well and a huge yeah. amount in education like huge which was embarrassing because i didn't know about it <laughs> so. we use it quite a bit um sometimes intuitively i have to say right so we're not necessarily calling it like that but we're, we're doing some of the principles that you shared um and sometimes we terribly fail I, I mean, that's that's part of the game, right? So yeah. that, that video approach that you described, um, it happens all the time. Yes, yeah. The, the the whole thing is built around failing and failing fast, or quite a lot of it is anyway. And see how many ways that you can fail because that's collecting data. And what you just and what you described regarding the prototype, I, I had to smile because. I am running an AI prototype right now with one of my teams. And I have exactly a group of engineers who are very, very keen to not go out with something that is not looking like perfect, right? It actually looks like crap. Um, and they were so uncomfortable putting it out there to a group of 50, 60, 70 engineers, right? But yeah, it's, it's the same kind of approach yeah. to do. Yeah, fail fast, fail cheap. Yeah, definitely. 
And it and it's important because you can waste a heck of a lot of your budget prototyping failures. Yeah, definitely. I like uh, that point about education because uh, it made me think about uh, one of the programs that my team are, are training in, uh, providing training for, and every every other month the uh, pro program director comes and tells me or my boss or my team that it's not working and the students tell my team something else but uh, we're trying to figure out how to keep changing it's just changing all the time but it's not getting there yeah yes yeah i i must admit i started reading some of the educational papers or you know papers in universities around how they're using design thinking and I was going mm, oh, what am I doing or what what's our department been doing and like why mm. I hadn't been got onto this earlier I've got no idea so um there's going to be a few shake-ups in our well it's already started I've sent them a whole load of design thinking papers and saying I think we need to rethink what we're doing here guys so yeah we definitely use the expert model first you know, teach what you're good at rather than what people want. <laughs> uh, that's a winner. <laughs> how would you see how do you see students um designing the course? I mean, how do you, it's it's an interesting Yeah, so it's concept, it? I think we need to go a bit further than the immediate students. So you know, we we do have, you know, obviously we have quite close connections with industry and things, but we, you know, we still, the way that we recruit lecturers, you know, you do your PhD, you know, you, you, you kind of asked a question, usually over a cup of tea somewhere of what are you going to do with your PhD? If the answer's something like, well, I haven't thought about it, the usual response is, do you fancy being an academic? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then if they say yes, it's like, Okay, would you like to put a course together on what you're an expert in? And then let's see if we can sell it. Now, you know, we're really fortunate at Oxford. We, you know, because it's Oxford, if we put it out, like all these people go, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go, we'll, we'll pay. Um, but it, that's not really the way it's meant to be going on. So what I think what we need to be doing, and this is why I've kind of fired off some of the papers to some of our design team, and I'm not involved in that anymore, but I you know, we really need to kind of look at it, is we need to kind of get in front of the destination of where our students are. So as psychologists, for example, we need to start looking at what, what kinds of jobs are they doing? Where are they going? And we need to kind of go and say, right, okay, what's going to be really useful here in terms of all of the expertise that we've got and, and doing it from there. And I'm a little uncomfortable about that because I hazard a guess that, Quite a lot of the stuff that I'm teaching about uncertainty isn't actually useful for many people. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to have to suck it up big time. I've got a horrible feeling. So, but uh, I'm close to retirement. So, so that I'll leave that with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't say that. <laughs> Uh, this will be this will be the episode that doesn't go out live. That David's <laughs> certainly got going on YouTube. That's for certain. <laughs> well, this bit's this bit's not going out live. That's for certain. No. <laughs> <laughs>
So you'd, you'd be getting in, the industry actually getting involved, or the end users, or the end these the, the potential employers of the students helping structure, design, ideate the course. Yeah. So so I did it. So I I when I was first professor and I was running a department at Cranfield, there was um, we kind of shifted things anyway. What was happening there was that we were going to industry and say we were asking the wrong question. And I realized that at the time. So the question we typically go uh, go in and say, we say, what content should we be teaching them? So they give us this big, long list of content, which is the wrong question. And so what I did was I changed it to asking, what are the attributes of a good one of these? You know, what is a attribute of a good organizational psychologist what is the attribute what are the attributes of and they came back with really different answers most of which was not to do with content it was in, to do with the skills the skills of thinking the skills of analysis the skills of being able to work with people that the content sits around and we started changing the course in there and so and I th looking at this I'm pretty convinced that that's the right line I don't we don't exactly do that at Oxford, so, but we need to certainly in our department. We're going to shift now. Um, as well, I've still got some clout before I get really old and crusty. So, and the young ones don't listen to me anyway. But you know, at least a, a small sliver of people do who've got enough power, so we'll be able to do something. <laughs> so, but that's that's enough of admissions for one night. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Any other comments or questions? <laughs> the monthly confessional session. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah my absolution. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And just an, um, an idea along the lines of you know prototyping and just going with that you know minimum viable product. Mm. I, I've just started using an app, and they put out a new feature. And in discussing with them, um, you know, the, the feature is nowhere near what they want it to be. But they did still introduce it. And, you know, I realized from that they're going to get a lot of feedback, you know, in that early stages. So rather than they going with just simply their ideas, they're going to actually get feedback from the users. And that will help refine it. You know, so that's one yeah. value of, you know, putting out something, you know, early and getting feedback from it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the... The other thing, you know, um, you know, I said that you know, I came to Oxford Review because I was focusing on this whole idea of, um, you know, defining and articul articulating different things. And so this here, you know, when we go through design thinking today, and I'm seeing that a lot of the, the processes are similar to not all of them, but, you know, when you pull out some of them, are some of the same processes we talk about for good brainstorming and good, you know, thinking. Um, so... You know, so it comes back again to that whole idea of communication and how best do we communicate? Because we all bring our own influences. So when we hear a word, you know, like we hear design thinking and we think, oh, that's just has to do with products. But then when you go through the process, you realize that the process can be applied to a lot of other different things, so especially coming out of Stanford, um, because they actually had moved from the idea of the design thinking to designing your life, right? So bring, bring up that whole process of, you know, designing your life. So... Um, the, a big factor then comes back to the attributes, as you said, you know, and what's necessary for the persons in the teams, you know, to communicate, right? Because a lot of this I'm seeing has to do with communication. 
how are the different elements of the people communicating when you get into a team how do you listen and oh, provide yeah. feedback and that type of stuff you know so i'll be you know really be interested in going through you know the competencies and seeing you know how they define those and what they mean and you know yeah yeah that's interesting yeah actually oops yeah we'll we'll add that to next month's list yeah definitely yeah and if there's anything that kind of comes up about so we'll we'll do part two and i'll kind of in, bring in those things as i kind of jump through some some more humiliation i <laughs> bits of research about design thinking yeah thanks barry <laughs> <laughs> yeah Yes, yeah, we'll have a look at that, and I, I do, and it, it's come out in quite a few papers, particularly around the collaboration piece uh, and communication. Yeah, nice, thanks, Alexis. Anything else? Any other comments, questions, or thoughts? Hi. I uh, I took a lot of uh, things because I knew already about uh, design thinking applied to products. Uh, what I take from this night is applying it to process in the organization. And actually it uh, related in my head to a problem I am having right now of top management wanting to change stuff right from, from, from their head without thinking uh, of consequences. And have you encountered in your research, uh, let's say, how many big companies use this process in top management, uh, let's say, decision-making or something? Yeah, that's a good question. Most of it, so large companies, some companies will use it in top management I've, there's a few papers doing like internal things like organizational development um, that's showing, you know, more and more com co uh, companies are starting to use it for internal processes. There's about 32,000 papers looking at, um, bizarrely, um, I mean, it's not that bizarre really when you think about it, looking at design thinking in human in HR. And I hadn't even thought about it. So it's really growing, but there are very few papers looking at it from a top management point of view. One or two papers which were really quite interesting, and and I've kind of I've kind of put them to the side. I'm going to go back to them actually, looking at design thinking for internal processes like business models, okay. and and involving things like the salespeople and the marketing people in designing the business rather than like a consultancy designing the business model or the management designing the business model, having a, a proper multifunctional team doing it from and seeing it from all the, all of the aspects. And, and th they were showing some really quite remarkable results on not only the business model, but how, how committed people were in the organization to the business model and that it really increased the commitment. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think th there are more processes that need to be kind of thought of in these ways. Definitely, yeah, nice. Thanks, Adrian. Excellent. Anything else? Any more for any more? 
super communicators. Oh, thanks, Alexis. Alexis has just put a book in there. Yeah. Yeah, we did um I did a podcast with what's his name around communication. Um there's a book that just been published by it'll be in the library somewhere. So if you go into the courses thing, it'll be in there. It was a book that had just been published around communications. It was a good interview, actually. They were looking at different types of communication within organizations and uh, problems of communication and management and things worth worth having a look at if you're into that. <laughs>